Good morning. The second scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Later in this service, we will receive four people into ministry and membership of our church. You will hear them give answer to familiar questions, questions that so many of you have also answered. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And do you promise to be Christ's disciple, to obey his word and to show his love? Do you promise to share faithfully in the worship and work of this congregation, giving of yourselves in every way? And do you promise to seek the fellowship of the church wherever you may be? Perhaps less familiar to you, are two other questions that historically would probably have accompanied these more familiar questions. Unlike those that ask us what we profess or affirm, these ask us about what we renounce. Do you renounce all evil and powers in the world which defy God's righteousness and love? Do you renounce the ways of sin that separate you from the love of God? We are no longer practiced in renouncing sin and evil. To do so feels a bit archaic. 
Though historically speaking, it has been a long-standing practice of the church. I myself have never witnessed or asked the questions of renunciation. Renouncing evil has, at least in some denominations, gone out of vogue. Why would this be the case? Surely it's not because evil and sin are any less prevalent today than in years past. Paul Kahn, professor of law and humanities at Yale University, thinks that today, outside of fundamentalist religious groups, there is a reluctance to appeal to the idea of evil. He writes about this in his book, Out of Eden, which I have mentioned to you before. What we find today in place of evil are scientific studies that try to explain the social causes of pathology. In place of redemption, we find therapeutic remedies. If those remedies do not work, society turns to law enforcement and the courts. All of these efforts by law enforcement, the judicial system, institutional policies and procedures, therapies, and education are secular attempts to treat evil. He suspects that while all these efforts are reasonable and valuable, when it comes to evil, there is something deeper at work than what these secular enterprises identify. And that by not speaking about it, we render ourselves impotent to detect much less counter its reality. In his book, What Do We Do With Evil? Franciscan priest Richard Rohr also addresses the rather recent phenomenon that evil seems to have fallen out of style. He begins the book by asking us, doesn't it disturb us just a bit? that the words evil and sin, which might just be the most common concepts in the Bible, are so rarely used in many circles today. He observes that today the words seem old-fashioned, and when they are used, they tend not to be helpful or clarifying. He suspects that many have stopped using the words because at some point in the history of the church, the concepts became so narrowed in meaning that they actually trivialized the very notion of evil. For example, we Catholics, he writes, eventually realized that eating meat on Friday had nothing to do with actual evil. Yet eating meat on Friday, along with not attending mass on Sunday, have since the 16th century been called mortal sins based on 1 John 5, 16 to 17, which speaks of a sin unto death. Really? He writes. Because of such trivializing applications of the word sin, and because the word sin became increasingly narrowed down to focus on personal faults and private offenses against God, and because we heard the concept of sin being used to judge, exclude, or control others, or to shame and control ourselves, it became a less useful idea for many of us, and we lost interest in it. Rightly so. 
He too thinks, however, that there is a resulting danger. The danger is that we have diverted our attention from and, and fail to detect real evil. Evil is subtle and well disguised. The tempter does not introduce himself by saying, I'm Satan, I'm here to tempt you. <laughs> the tempter can look and sound like a friend, like the one who says he's looking out for you. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, not to a fiend, but to a friend, his friend, Simon Peter. At the heart of any temptation is not an offer to fall, but to rise. The tempter in Eden did not ask, do you wish to be as the devil? The tempter asked, do you wish to be as God? And so the tempter in the wilderness begins, since you are the son of God. No self-respecting tempter would approach a person with offers of personal, social, and professional ruin. Instead, Satan's offers are quite the opposite. First, he tempts Jesus by asking, will your ministry be one of turning stones into bread? Will it be one of feeding the hungry? Since you are the son of God, why don't you command this stone to become a loaf of bread? Feed yourself and others. Relieve the world's hunger. Jesus says no. At Jesus' refusal, in the very next instant, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem to the pinnacle of the temple, where from there he can see the entire temple district. It's here, presumably, that the most righteous carry out their work. Surely God will be on the side of the people here protecting them, making them victors, and saving them from any harm. So the tempter says to Jesus, since you are the son of God, God is on your side. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. To this also, Jesus says no. He refuses to put God to the test. Tempter that he is, Satan expands the scope of his offer. This time he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and offers Jesus power over all of it. How would you like to rule the world? Think of all the good you could do. You wouldn't even need miracles to make sure that all were fed. You could feed the world through new policies. If you were in charge of the military and had all the economic, political, and administrative power in your hands, think of the impact you could have. I know you would rule the world with justice. Jesus says no. What does it mean to be about God's business? Jesus spends time in the wilderness to sort this out. Though Jesus refused to turn stones into bread, he will feed the hungry. Though he refused to jump off the temple to prove to the devil that God is on his side, 
He will go to the cross in silence, trusting that God will be faithful to him. Though he refused to exert a political agenda and to wield political power, the proclamation of God's kingdom will often be the focus of his preaching and teaching. With each opportunity presented to him, Jesus has to decide whether to go down a particular path, when to lean in, and when to resist, what to profess and what to renounce. Jesus' followers, even his closest disciples, will be so confused by his decisions, why he leans in sometimes and other times says no, why he preaches about the kingdom of God but rejects a political agenda and political tactics, why he uses miracles to heal and feed people but not to save himself, why he has a public ministry but eschews growing crowds. Sometimes we think that those who live a purposeful life have it all. That they seize every opportunity and make the most of every good offer. If this story teaches us anything, it teaches us the importance of renunciation. Before Jesus begins his public ministry, he must practice identifying real evil and renouncing it. It is hard to identify real evil, especially when it is so accepted by the world we live in. Evil finds its most perfect camouflage in the things already deemed good by our society and that are also personally advantageous. So whether something is advantageous to us or not, is never the real issue on which goodness or evil depends. When was the last time you said no to something, even though it would have been personally, socially, professionally, financially disadvantageous? No, Let me ask that again. When was the last time you said no to something even though it would have been personally, socially, professionally, or financially advantageous. Of course, not every no is a renunciation of evil. The point I'm trying to make is this. Given that renunciation of evil requires us to be able to detach ourselves from our agendas and from our egos, we likely have more opportunities to renounce evil than we take. Jesus tells us to pray so that we can discern the difference between following Jesus and following Satan and to have the courage to say, away with you, Satan. It has been a hard lesson for the church to learn. Over and again, we still long for a Christ of power, position, and privilege. We long for Jesus to have impact, to be useful, to be relevant. 
Even though, again and again, Jesus has shown us what it means not to regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Even though, to the point of death on the cross, Jesus humbled himself, we still ask, can we sit at your right hand or your left hand in your kingdom? If Jesus... Son of God took this humble approach, never exerting his power or privilege for the sake of affecting God's kingdom. What might it mean for us, who are children of God? Lent is a time for the church to sort out what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God and for us to be children of God. It's time for us to ground ourselves in our true identity. If we do not know ourselves, we are dangerously susceptible to temptation, to confusion about when to lean in and when to say no, to mistaking Satan's ways for Jesus's ways. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose his soul? It is no surprise that the tempter's final attempt to capture the soul of Jesus takes place when Jesus is most vulnerable. In the taunts of those passers-by deriding and mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross, we hear the tempter still trying to shake Jesus from his identity. Since you are the Son of God, they shouted him, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. What more would Jesus want than for the world to believe in him and in his Father in heaven through him? As a church whose mission is to make disciples of all nations, it is a lot for us to sort out. Amen.